Andy, over to you. Thank you. Well, the first thing I better do is get my notes. The second thing might be to say that probably the biggest question on people's minds tonight is, will Andy Murray win? <laughs> I will try to be suitable compensation for you missing that. Great. Now let's see if I can manage to do this without wrecking it. Oop. Great. It works. Um, thanks for having me. Um, the, the main Atkins act around here is not, in fact, me, but Sarah over there, who joined the staff team with Catherine and many others as assistant minister um, a few months ago. So I've been delighted with Sarah to just come and be a part of the church here to make it our new home church. I was then somewhat taken by surprise to find that what I was doing in my day job was uh, of some interest to, to people. and then to be invited to give this talk. So thank you very much for your, your interest. I really appreciate that. And I hope that what I can say tonight can help many of you who have, I know, been working on environmental issues here um, within Holy Trinity, perhaps in other churches as well, to give you some sense of what we could do and what we could do more if we, if we put our minds and our prayers to it. And I believe there's a lot more we could do, um, though I'm pleased, frankly, with where the churches are getting to on this as well. So... Um, let me speak very briefly, um, and I'll, I'll do sort of headlines on many of these things in the next 30 minutes, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion time afterwards. So for me, one of the, the best parts of occasions like this is actually the discussion, hearing what you think, what you're doing, and then try to come up with ways forward together. But I'll look at the biblical basis briefly. I know you've had some teaching on that here before. Um, I'll look at the causes and solutions of the climate crisis. I'll talk a little bit about why now is a particularly important moment to act because of the war in Ukraine. There are huge connections. Um, I'll look at the unique role of Christians and churches on this. And this is the heart of what I will be saying, what I feel God is, has given Christians and churches um, to make a difference on this issue. And then I'll end with some ideas on how Arosha, the organization I work with now, can hopefully help you as individuals and as, and as churches to do more. So, what does the Bible have to say on this? I'll be very brief here. You can kind of sum it up in some short phrases, really. First of all, God made it, the environment, loves it, and expects us to love it too. It's really quite simple. The Bible's very clear from the first book of Genesis onwards that God created the earth. And you will see that is repeated through the Psalms, through all books of the Bible. You come across it so often. God created the earth. Then in Genesis 1, verse 31, we read that God brought all life into being. And God then looked over all that he had made and saw that it was very good. And as I like to say, if God thought it was very good, why would he want us to trash it? It's obvious if you read on, that he really doesn't. Because then in Genesis 2.15, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. You often don't hear that second bit. You hear a lot about the earth is us to do what we want to do with it, which it doesn't say in the Bible, but often that next bit gets left out. To work it and to take care of it. So that's really the first part of our mandate as Christians, as humans in fact, not just as Christians, to, to look after the earth. But I think there's a second really important biblical mandate for us to care for the earth. 
And that is that people depend on it. As we know, one of the key principles in, in our faith, actually, in, you know, again, embedded in the Bible from start to finish, is that we should love others as we love ourselves. Jesus said it, but he was, I think, quoting Deuteronomy much earlier in the Bible. It's there from the start. And now we know that climate change is really affecting people. The story of the Good Samaritan was all about, wasn't it, loving your neighbor, loving the poor and the vulnerable, putting them first, going the extra mile to help them. And now that we know that climate change, and in fact other forms of environmental destruction, are really affecting people, we have a second really clear biblical mandate to act on this. So we have a double mandate, as we like to say in Russia, as Christians, to act on the environment generally, on climate change, among other things. And we're here as a Russia to try to help churches to do that and to see how they can do it better. Now, I think it's an honor as well as a responsibility as Christians to be given a part in God's creation, to be given a role to look after the rest of creation, of which we are a part. Um, but it is both. It's an honor, and I think we often feel guilty about it. We think we haven't done it very well. Instead of seeing it as a huge gift to us and an important role, or we can go the other way and go into denial and go, well, it's nothing to do with us. There's nothing we can do. I'm not responsible for it. And I think as Christians, we need to receive the truth that it is an honor God has given us to have a role in his creation. It's an amazing gift. But with that also comes responsibility. So, let me move on now to the causes of climate change. A little bit of science here. Um, some of you may think you are very scientific. Some of you may think, I don't want to hear anything about science. It's over my head. I am not a scientist. I'm a social scientist, technically, but I'm not an astrophysicist or a chemist or whatever. I just about scraped O-level chemistry. So I hope this will make sense to everybody. A few things about climate change. Yes. First of all, there are naturally occurring changes in the climate. Otherwise, we never would have had ice ages. And you hear a lot of people going, I don't really understand because surely there have always been changes in the climate. Yes, there have always been changes in the climate. You're absolutely right. What is happening now is something completely different. It's got nothing to do with the natural cycles. If it were, we would now be getting colder. We have overridden the natural cycles by what we have done to the atmosphere. When I was starting doing geography in 1979, the big fear was of another ice age, believe it or not. And technically, we should be heading towards an ice age. We've overridden the natural cycles completely and utterly. So, what is causing it? It's happening largely because since the Industrial Revolution, we've been burning increasing quantities of coal, oil and gas, so-called fossil fuels, in our power stations to make electricity, to heat our homes, to power our transport, from cars to planes, everything has been powered by fossil fuels effectively. And now the industrialized countries, Britain included, and we started the Industrial Revolution, we've benefited hugely from this. There's no point denying it. We've benefited hugely. Our development, our wealth, much of that comes from fossil fuel energy. What we did not know until relatively recently, it's now been known for at least half a century, was that fossil fuels are also putting pollutants into the atmosphere 
which are changing the balance of chemicals, which means that the atmosphere, which is like a blanket of gases around the Earth, is trapping more and more of the sun's energy inside the blanket. It's forming, it's heating us up. So naturally, without these greenhouse gases, as they're called, that come from fossil fuels, we would be at a stable-ish temperature. A few swings here and there over very, very slowly, over millennia, but because we've been pumping so much of this gas into the atmosphere in just the last 200 years, it is completely changing the balance of the Earth's atmosphere, trapping more heat in, and we are heating up like a giant greenhouse. Actually, the science of this was posited now about 150 years ago by an American physicist, totally on the basis of theoretical physics. Basically, he was saying worse to this effect, you know, as we now have electric kettles, they didn't then. When you switch a switch on an electric kettle, you're expecting it to heat up. You may not know how that happens, but there is a chemical reaction, a physical reaction, that causes the water to boil. Frankly, it's almost as simple with the Earth's atmosphere. If you chuck all these gases into the atmosphere, you will disturb the balance and we will heat up. They figured that out about 150 years ago. But only in the last 50 years have they started to actually see the evidence of it happening. So what they predicted through theoretical physics is now happening, and happening very fast. So, that's not good news. What I've said is the primary source of greenhouse gases is fossil fuels, coal, gas, oil. Um, but this, there are other sources, and these become increasingly important if we are going to do something about climate change. We have to know what all of the causes are so that we can then bring in solutions. So, the second biggest cause is land use change. Changing our forests, our grasslands, our wetlands in this country and abroad, and turning them into farmland in particular, as well as roads and housing development and so on. The reason being is in their natural state, that land absorbs carbon. It absorbs that and keeps locked in those gases that, if released, change our atmosphere. So the more we change our natural landscape, the more we now know we are releasing these gases into the atmosphere. Another big cause of greenhouse gases is, in fact, livestock farming, particularly cattle and sheep. Two reasons for that. One is they require a lot of land. So it's partly about the land that is changed, as I said, the land use change, in order for them to have grazing land, the forests that are cut down, the marshes that are drained, so that they can graze. But the other thing we now know, I'm not going to say in church, but cattle and sheep have a lot of wind. They give off a huge amount of gas. That gas we now know is methane. It is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. So unfortunately, the trend of the last few decades to eat more and more meat and dairy, it now turns out is drastically contributing to warming our planet. There are now more domestic animals in the world than there are wild ones. We have killed, and, and, and by ruining the habitat of wildlife, we have switched the balance from wild animals to domestic ones in terms of the large, particularly the Raj ruminants, you know. There are many more, many, 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 many more times cows and sheep which we farm now than there are wild elephants, wildebeest, or anything like that. We completely, completely switched the balance. 
And in the natural state, bear in mind, if you're wondering, well, didn't they cause greenhouse gas emissions? Yes and no, because they were wild, they are wild, it goes back into the soil and is, is absorbed. But the vast quantities of domestic animals we now grow and farm, the dung from them, frankly, This will work if it will stay on my ears. The question is, why is it not staying on my called Spock at school, because I not only have pointy ears, but they're very small. Is that going to work? I think so. Try again. Yes, so domestic farming is actually of wildlife we now know contributing to the problem. Lastly, industrial processes. Gas is made in the, in the course of making all the stuff we buy and use. Some things are worse than others. There's a lot of work going into trying to use less energy and also produce less greenhouse gases from our manufacturing. But all, those three things, land use change, livestock farming, industrial processes, on top of fossil fuel use, are, are all contributing to greenhouse gases and climate change. So that gives us a clue as to what we can do about it, and I'll come to that in a minute. Let me just look briefly at the impacts. Now, anybody who reads the paper, watches television, you will be increasingly aware of these things. Um, anybody who has a garden will be aware of these things, because you probably noticed that your flowers are breaking out much sooner than they used to, if you're of a certain age. Indeed, spring is now coming 20 to 40 days earlier than it did 50 years ago. We probably, who, who has seen the impacts of this in their own garden out of interest? Yeah, I mean, just about two-thirds of the people here. Um, if you're of a certain age, you won't have, because you wouldn't have had a chance, he says, looking at one of the young ones in the church. So, the impacts are visible to us now, but they are also extremely serious, much, much worse than spring coming earlier in our gardens. Increasing extremes of weather, rainfall intensity increasing dramatically so that we now have many more floods, topsoil loss, and so on, which affects farming, which affects food production, which affects food security, which affects food prices. Heat waves leading to damage to humans, to crops, to nature, to mega-fires of the sort that we're starting to see in the last decade. Sea level rise leading to coastal inundation. I saw a report the other day that even in Britain, surrounded, bear in mind, much of our coastland by cliffs, although of course we do have low-lying areas as well, they are predicting that 200,000 people will have to move from their houses in the next 20, 30 years. In Britain, what do you do if you are in Bangladesh, where two-thirds of your country is only a metre above sea level? Where are they going to go? What political ramifications is it going to cause when they migrate? The implications of this are unbelievably serious. Now, we're already experiencing these things. There have already been wars that have been contributed to by climate change. Little known is that the war in Syria has been partly prompted by large numbers of people moving from the countryside to the urban areas because of repeated extreme drought in the rural areas so their crops would not grow. And it's the, partly the big influx of people into the cities 
which has again disturbed the political balance and led to conflict. We saw that 10 years earlier in Darfur, in, um, in, in, in the Sudan region of, of, of Africa. There are already conflicts now being sparked by the migration caused by climate change. So it's really scary stuff. Really scary stuff. And I'm really sorry for some of the younger ones here in particular, because we know, I know, that the next generation is going to really be affected by this. Which is why I think we of an older generation have such a responsibility to act and act soon and act hard and do what we can with our influence to mitigate what might otherwise happen. But the good news, there are solutions. And this I find, I, I feel very mixed about this. Having worked on this issue for 20 years now, I am really excited by the solutions that there are, and I'm deeply frustrated that we have failed to implement them when we could have. So we now need to go very, very much faster. Let me talk about the four main things that need to happen. First of all, we need to get off fossil fuel driving our economies as fast as we possibly can. That means getting off coal, oil, gas, and onto renewable energy, energy that comes from wind, from solar, from tidal, and other things, and is increasing energy efficiency. The second shift is away from an unhealthily meat and dairy dependent diet. We all like, probably, unless you're a vegan or a vegetarian, we probably all like meat and dairy. I do. But we have to recognize that the amount of it we eat in the Western world is not even healthy for us, never mind the planet. We really need to shift to a more balanced diet, because that's what it is, a more balanced diet with a greater proportion of plant-based food. Thirdly, we need to stop destroying the carbon sinks, the forests, the marshes, the wetlands, and so on, and start regenerating them. Some of you may have read, heard recently, a lot more about rewilding. What's going on there is people saying, we need to return this land to the wild for nature, for carbon. It's starting to happen. We need to speed it up. Fourthly, we need to move away from that throwaway culture where we buy loads of stuff that hardly lasts any time at all, then we buy another one, and so on. Because, as I said earlier, the production of all this stuff also reduces greenhouse gases. So the good news is we know what needs to happen. We just need to speed it up. And the UK itself is not doing badly on some of these things. We're doing terribly on others, frankly. But if it's of interest, we have more installed capacity, as they call it, of, of offshore wind farms than any country in the world. We're a small island surrounded by sea with a lot of wind. We are ideally located for wind power. And indeed, we have more of it offshore than any other country. Other piece of good news, I think, is that many of the things we need to do for climate change are also really beneficial for other things we care about. So stopping fossil fuel use in our transport, getting our cars and our road fleets off fossil fuel would actually save probably up to 40,000 lives a year. Why is that? because they now believe that 40 to 50,000 people a year in this country alone die of largely fossil fuel-based air pollution every year. Every year. They 
UN brought out a study very recently saying they now think 9 million people a year worldwide are dying from air pollution. Not all because of fossil fuel pollution, there are other things in there as well, but much of it caused by fossil fuel. So there are huge co-benefits, as they call it in the language, of doing the right things on climate change for other things we really care about. So, there's a real opportunity here, but there is also real urgency. And I come back to that point of the need to move very fast. Uh, in 2015, some of you may remember, there was the Paris Climate Summit. At that summit, the commitment was to try to hold temperature change to 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial average. Forgive the technical language above the temperature before we started the Industrial Revolution, okay? But in their latest report, just two months ago, the same intergovernmental panel on climate change said this, limiting global warming to around 1.5 degrees requires global greenhouse gas emissions to peak before 2025. That's three years time. At the latest, and be reduced by 43% by 2030. At the same time, methane, another greenhouse gas, this is the thing that comes from animals, just to be clear, would also need to be reduced by about a third. Even if we do this, they said, it is almost inevitable that we will temporarily exceed this temperature threshold, but could return to below it by the end of the century if we do the right things, implied. That is really scary. But, as Christians and churches, trying to be salt and light in a broken world, we need to grasp that and allow the facts, I think, to really focus our hearts and our minds and our prayers on what God is calling us to do in this situation. Now, there's a lot we could do as individuals and families, and I can come back to that in questions um, just for time. I'm going to skip that one because I'm sure we can cover that very easily uh, in questions. But I want to look for time at the bigger picture of churches and, and Christians, what we could do together, not just what we do individually. I think we've been given huge... Yeah, that just happens to be a local church near here, but I'm talking about the church with a capital C, all denominations, all local churches, and so on. We've been given huge assets... I think, by God and our history here with which to act. The first thing, of course, is our relationship with God the Creator through worship, through prayer, to sustain us in tough times and our double mandate that we spoke about to motivate us to action. But very practically, we've also got our buildings and our churchyards, tangible physical assets which we can manage in order to cut carbon, in order to use churchyards, let's say, as mini carbon sinks, as well as wonderful wildflower meadows for the local community. We can also have, and we have got, a national presence. There are 50,000 churches in the UK, most with buildings, not all. 50,000 self-defined worshipping communities in every village, town, and neighbourhood. There's huge potential there to demonstrate, to witness to the wider community about the right thing to do and how to do it, which could really influence the whole of society, not just one building here and there. 
And there's also our numbers. There are three to four million regular churchgoers. It depends on whose statistics you want to believe. But the point is, that is still much, much bigger than just about any other group, organized group in society. And there's more. We have denominational financial investments, the Church of England pension funds, major land holdings by the church commissioners and some dioceses. We have political voice at the national level. There are 26 bishops in the House of Lords. And it goes on and on. When you add together all the different things that the churches have got that they could use to influence, there's huge potential for Christians and churches to play a leading role in addressing this problem in this country and for the benefits of those abroad. So we like to kind of dream about the possibilities, but I think we're in that terrain now. We really do need to dream big dreams about what could happen if we are to leave a habitable planet to some of the youngest ones in this church here tonight. So what if even a quarter of local churches started acting to care for the environment fully, as fully as we are able? What if even a quarter of us individual Christians started speaking up through campaigns to urge the government and business to go much faster towards the things they need to do, renewable energy and so on? I believe it could be game-changing, genuinely game-changing for the UK in the next 10 years. And we really only have about 10 years at the most to do the right things if we are not to be triggering unstoppable climate change. So, with that in mind, I just want to say a very brief bit about how this relates to the wider mission of the church. Because you get people who understandably say, well, this is good. We totally believe that it's a good idea that somebody does something about the environment. But why the church? Now, all you good Anglicans here and online will know that the Anglican Church has something called the five marks of mission. There they are. You all know them by heart, I'm sure. You will see that the last one, to strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew life on earth, that's about caring for the environment. It was added in 1984, so it's not new. It's actually quite old, but it was an afterthought. The point I want to make here is that caring for God's creation, caring for the environment, does not just fulfill that fifth one. It underpins everything. So, for example, if we are showing care of creation in our community, we are pointing people towards a creator God. If we're tackling climate change, which so badly affects poor people, then we are serving the poor and the vulnerable. If we are speaking up against policies that are making climate change happen faster, if we are arguing for a change in the structure of the economy so that it accelerates the responses to climate change, then we are standing up against the unjust structures in society. You see what I'm saying? For a very long time, doing the fifth mark of mission has been an afterthought, as if we do the other things first, then we can get to this. I say it's the other way around. Unless we do this, we can't do the others increasingly because the suffering that is going to be caused by climate change will overshadow so much of the other things that we are trying to do. Now, environment is not the only thing the church should do. Of course it isn't. We have so many things we should be doing. But the point I'm making is it can't be left as to an afterthought anymore. It underpins all of the others. So... Let me draw to a close and look at what we can do collectively and individually.
Um, I'll say a little bit about Arosha, if I may, because I hope we can then help you in your homes, in the church, in wider society to tackle this issue. Arosha started off as a nature conservation organization, actually. Um, many of you will know. I've been talking to Roger, isn't it? Yep. Um, who we, we've known for a long time, and we're at Tear Fund together. Um, and who knows Arosha? Many of you others here will know Arosha. It began as a nature conservation organization in Portugal, hence the Portuguese name. Arosha means the rock in Portugal. It was a nature study center at a time when very few Christians were really engaged in the environment. And many people went there and were inspired by it and thought, oh, we want one of these in our country, which is what happened. So another Anglican minister came back to the UK and set up Arosha UK as a local conservation project in Southall, West London, not far from here. So we've done local community conservation for quite a while, but about seven years ago, we decided, looking at the environmental trends, like climate change and so on, that I've spoken about here, that we really needed to scale up what we were doing to try to have a national impact. And at that point, we said, we're going to go from just doing a little bit of conservation ourselves, though that's a good thing to do, and we should all do it if we get the chance, looking after our garden for nature or whatever. We're going to go beyond that to try to help others to do that themselves. So we changed the mission to mobilizing Christians and churches to care for creation, for God, nature, and all people. And we've set ourselves some big goals now. The first is to see 75,000 acres of Christian-managed land working for nature and to cut carbon. And believe it or not, there are large numbers of Christian retreat centers, conference centers, activity centers in this country that have land. They have it by accident. They weren't trying to farm it or make it a nature reserve. So we are now getting together with them to form a network that will manage that land for nature. Okay? So that's our partner in action program that we run. We've now got 30 different conference centers and retreat centers in it and a queue of another 30 waiting to join. Next thing we're trying to do is to see churches taking much more action. So many of you will know of our eco-church program and, and Holy Trinity is part of that. There are now 5,000 churches in this country registered for eco-church. That's just happened in just five years. And our aim is to see 25% of UK churches taking part in this scheme or our sister scheme in Scotland and, and, and Ireland. Eco-churches, England and Wales, what it's worth. Now, we're halfway there but our goal is to see a huge expansion in what churches are doing. We also want to see 50,000 individual Christians and families equipped to look after nature in their own home and also taking part in action, campaigns and so on to urge the government or business to go further faster on this. So we have our wild Christian scheme, as we call it, which is rapidly growing. There are 5,000 members of that already. It's free. That's the thing we would recommend to you for your homes and your families. It's a, a monthly email with ideas for action, pointing you towards good things you can do in your own home and garden, as well as campaigns you might want to be a part of. And lastly, we are supporting Christian environmental leaders, whether they are bishops who have a responsibility for the environment or those with no public profile whatsoever. They're Christians in business, Christians in politics, Christians in the community who are trying to take a leadership role. So we are building up ways of supporting them. We have about 100 at the moment. And we're looking to support about 500 within the next three or four years. So that's what Arosha does. And I'm hoping that there's something there that is helpful to you 
Uh, the best thing I could offer is to, by all means, sign up. It's free to Wild Christian at the back, and we can keep you informed. It is true to say we are small. There's only 25 staff. Um, we've got a very low budget, and we achieve what we do as much through a large network of volunteers than anything we do. It's also true that we are needing resources to grow. So if there is anybody here who thinks, actually, I'd quite like to help you as we try to help others, please have a word with me there. Forms at the back. You can become a regular financial donor. You can give us a gift. But above all, we would like to help you. We would like to help Christians all over the UK get on board with this biblical mandate we have, this honour as well as the responsibility to look after God's creation. Now, that was always the case. It was always an honour and a responsibility. But with the science we are now seeing on climate change and the urgency of implementing the solutions to climate change very, very fast, it now becomes, I think, a whole societal challenge, not just in this country, but elsewhere, to move much, much faster on those solutions for the sake of the next generation as well as ourselves, frankly, you know, who are already suffering from this. We believe, as Christians, that actually those who worship the Creator God should be in the forefront of this, not standing on the sidelines going, we don't understand what's going on, it's for somebody else to do. I know that many here in Holy Trinity don't need convincing of that. You're already doing great work on the environment, but I hope that we can work with you to accelerate that and learn together over some of the challenges there will be, because we are in uncharted territory. We do not have, nobody has, all of the solutions here. But the sooner we get going together on trying to take action, the more we will learn how we can combat this very big threat to God's creation. So we do that together uh, in service of a loving God. That's what we're attempting. I'd be delighted to work with you and Holy Trinity on that. Thank you.